Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel with a changing culture. I'm Eric Sintel, and uh, before we get started, I want to say that Trinity just launched a second service, so we now have a traditional service and a contemporary service. Um, the traditional service starts at 9 a.m. Um, the and ends at 10 a.m., and then the contemporary service begins at 10.30. Um, in between, between 10 and 10.30, um, people visit and uh, fellowship together. So um, if you are interested in either of those worship options, a traditional service or a more contemporary service, we offer those now at Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, um, on Highway 34, about halfway between Piedmont and Patterson, for those of you who are local. And if those of you who are listening to us from other states, from other countries, if you're ever visiting uh, the small town of Piedmont, Missouri, you know, I hope you'll join us for one of those services. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about interpreting the Bible in a way that I think more closely captures what the authors intended and therefore respects them. You know, if you think about uh, disagreements you've had with people in your life, you know, if people um, misrepresent what you say or distort what you say or take something completely unintended from what you say, um, it doesn't even have to be a disagreement. I mean, it could just be, you know, a conversation or discussion of a topic. Um, you don't feel respected, do you, when someone takes something you say and takes something completely different from what, from what you intended to say? Um, and I think that we often do that with the Bible, and it sets people up for some crises of faith. So, for example, um, I write a lot about religion and the Bible and my faith on the website medium.com. And uh, there's this one gentleman uh, who comments on a lot of my articles, and I don't really know why, because he seems to be an atheist. If not an atheist, he's definitely hostile toward religion, um, and uh, or at least organized religion. And he's always commenting with like these uh, criticisms of certain interpretations of the Bible and or certain stories in the Bible, um, criticisms of organized religion in general, um, you know, basically uh, a lot of just criticisms of faith, really. Um, you know, he's definitely uh, a humanist or secularist in the sense that you know, he doesn't seem, based on his comments, he doesn't seem to believe in God. Um, he thinks it's this fairy tale kind of myth thing, and he, and yet he continues reading my articles <laughs> about faith and about religion. Um, in fact, in his last comment, he even just told me he's a fan. So okay. Um, great, I'm glad you're reading my stuff, um, you know, for whatever you're getting out of it. But his last comment, the one in which he, um, you know, he said I, he was still a fan of mine, um, you know, he pointed out some things in the Bible that really bother him, you know, such as, you know, the uh, conquest of Canaan, and also, you know, that David uh, messed up and took a census and that angered God and then there was this awful plague on the people and 70,000 people died and and this man's point was the God that we see in scripture is often genocidal homicidal maniac who can be easily displeased and comes down with a hammer um, and you never really know you know if you're an Old Testament Jew, you'd, you'd never really know, am I on God's good side, bad side? I don't know. 
So in my reply to him, you know, I said that if we take those kinds of stories literally, then yes, I think we see a homicidal maniac of a god. But if we interpret those stories in those passages as ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern literature, through which we might discern something about God or we might wrestle with God, um, then I think we have a very different, very more, much more accurate understanding of what the biblical authors were trying to convey. Um, and so this is, you know, this sounds kind of scary, can even sound a little heretical. Um, but I mean, if you listen to much of the Bible Project with Dr. Tim Mackey, um, if you listen much to the Bible for Normal People with Dr. Pete Enns, if you listen to any, um, you will come to understand how they uh, view the Bible in its human context, right? The Bible is both human and divine, just like Jesus, both human and divine. So uh, having listened to hundreds of hours of both of those podcasts um, and being an English teacher who you know, teaches some literature on occasion, um, has taught mythology in the past, I'm very comfortable with viewing the Bible as both human and divine. And in my view, in my opinion, this isn't disrespecting scripture, rather this is respecting scripture because I'm trying to understand it, what the authors were trying to get at and their audience, their purpose, their context, so that I can more closely understand and appreciate their worldview rather than imposing my worldview on them. You know, so Dr. Tim Mackey um, in his other podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible, has this great sermon about science and faith, and he talks about Genesis a lot. And um, he introduces that sermon with this analogy that, you know, you wouldn't go to France as an American, you wouldn't travel to France and start insisting that everyone uh, view the world as you do as an American and that they uh, speak English and that all the signs will be in English. Um, obviously, a lot of tourist destinations make those kinds of accommodations, um, but you wouldn't, shouldn't um, just expect that and insist upon it. Um, another analogy he gives is, you know, if you take cultural phrases or references, like if you say, you know, may the force be with you, um, most people in American culture are probably going to know what that refers to. Oh, that's a line from Star Wars. Um, if you say, beam me up, Scotty, a lot of people will recognize that as a line from Star Trek. A lot of people won't. Um, and so we have these different um, cultural associations, cultural knowledge that, it, that we can't escape. It's just a part of who we are having grown up in the culture that we live in. So we uh, can't help but view the world a certain way. And so according to Tim Mackey, what we often do is we come to the Bible with our modern worldview, our modern associations and understandings, and we impose that on the scriptures. And then we miss what the biblical authors were really trying to say. And we take away a message that's totally not what they were trying to say. You know, so a real basic example would be, you know, when we look in Genesis, and it says that the, the God formed the earth. To a modern person, you get an image in your mind of this pale blue dot, this globe floating in space. That's the earth. That's what God formed. But if you're an ancient Israelite, to you, the earth is the ground underneath your feet. It's the dirt underneath your feet that you can see going out to the horizon. 
And because that image of a, uh, a sphere floating in space, orbiting the sun, that image has only been available to humans for about the last you know, 50, 60 years, 70 years. So, um, since we started sending satellites and space shuttles into space and we were able to see it from that vantage point, take pictures of it from that vantage point. You know, so for most of human history, that's not the image people had in their mind if you said the word Earth or said the land. They had a much more immediate image in their mind um, and they were much more connected to the Earth and the land under their feet that they could see going out to the horizon. So often, as modern people, we impose our modern worldview and our modern knowledge and associations onto this ancient text, these ancient scriptures, with an ancient context and ancient cultural references and knowledge. One of those big modern assumptions is that history has to be factually accurate. Um, and for ancient writers, not just in the Middle East, to Jerusalem and Palestine, but throughout Greece, Rome, most ancient cultures, um, history was more embellished, more exaggerated. Um, it, you know, we we're trying to make the rulers at the time look really good, make our enemies look really bad, um, and there was a lot of mythologizing of history. Um, and I would argue that we, you can see us doing this today. We just seem to be a little bit more aware of the boundary between mythologizing history and, well, this is a history textbook. So for us, we, we look at the Bible and we ask, was well, this factually accurate? Is this historically accurate? And those are questions that modern people are very concerned about, but that the ancient people would never even think to ask because that didn't matter. Um, see, we think of truth as, is this factually true? And that's one version of truth, one form of truth. But the ancients and who were writing the Bible, who were living in that time, they um, viewed the myth as true, right? Now, we have this negative association with the word myth. We associate that with ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and these uh, pagan gods, and Zeus, and Apollo, and Jupiter, and Hera, and all, that, all these crazy stories <laughs> from Greek and Roman mythology. And, and so we hear the word myth and we think, oh, that's something made up, something not true. And so when someone says, well, the creation myth, it raises alarm bells. It's like, wait, wait, you're saying Genesis isn't true. And what Dr. Mackey would say and what I would agree with is we're looking at it the wrong way. We're looking at it with this modern set of assumptions that myth is something made up and not true and history or um, creation accounts in, the, in Genesis that's factually true, that's historically accurate. Um, and that modern assumption causes us to miss what the biblical authors were getting at. The biblical authors, you know, if, if we could sit down with, with those who pen Genesis, um, they would, I think, be very confused <laughs> at us asking those kinds of questions. It's like, well, no, this isn't exactly factually accurate or historically accurate, um, but it's more true than facts. You know? So. I mentioned earlier I, I've taught mythology in the past and so to say that myth is something that's just made up it's not true is really a huge misunderstanding of myth and mythology um, because a myth describes the way things are it describes um, ideals and philosophies and values and you know there's the 
truth in the sense of facts and details and records, but there's also truth in the sense of wisdom and meaning. And that's the kind of truth that myth provides, that myth explores. Um, and so, you know, to say that, you know, Genesis, the creation story, is not literal, but rather a myth or a figurative story, is not to devalue it or disrespect it, but it's rather to get rid of our modern assumptions that we impose upon the Bible um, and to instead view the Bible with ancient eyes through an ancient lens. And then when we do that, I, at least when I do that personally, I find that this story that's not that meaningful, not that significant to me, all of a sudden pops with tremendous meaning, tremendous wisdom that informs me and how I live my life. Circling back to that commenter, you know, he is reading these scriptures, these stories as literal historical factual accounts um, from a modernist assumption. And I'm speculating a little bit, but I suspect that he is reading it that way in part because that's how the Christians he has known in his life and grown up around and, and experienced, that's how they read it. And so he's not necessarily coming to it and saying, this is how I read it, but rather this is how I understand Christians to read the Bible and read scriptures. And if that's how they read it, this is disturbing, right? Like the idea that God would get mad at David for taking a census and then punish all of the Israelites, you know, that's frightening. That's crazy. That's a homicidal maniac of a God. And it's disturbing to me that that's the God depicted in scripture and a billion Protestants and a billion Catholics worldwide worship that God. Um, and I understand where he's coming from. Uh, if you do read the Bible with that modernist framework, um, it's hard not to be very bothered by passages like that and depictions of God like that. Um, and so instead, I would argue for reading the Bible through ancient eyes, from an ancient lens. So for me, um, in large part, that means trying to understand what the biblical author's worldview was, what their frames of reference were, um, what was, you know, what were the things that they said that were like, beam me up, Scotty, you know, that have a certain meaning and connection. And that if you're unfamiliar with that context, you just don't get. And so you have to do the work of trying to figure out that context, trying to learn and study it. Um, you know, I, I have a PhD in English, not Hebrew studies, not Near Eastern studies. So I'm relying on people like Tim Mackey of the Bible Project and Pedins of the Bible for Normal People um, to share their wisdom and their learning and to interview scholars um, to share even additional scholars' learning and wisdom and, and research. Um, but having, you know, by relying on those people, um, it really, you realize so much of what's in the Bible is so foreign, so different. Now, having taught mythology, um, I would go maybe just a little step further than Tim Mackey would go based on the hundreds of hours I've listened to him on podcasts. And I would say that there are passages of the Bible that are closer to, um, a primitive people trying to explain events as best they can than they are to revealing the character of God. That probably sounds terrifying, but I'm going to go into some examples. Um, 
related to that commenter and you know a couple of the examples he cited as well as some more examples and i'm going to try to explain what i mean and why i think um it's actually more respectful of the biblical authors and scripture and their inspiration to put those people in their context to put those people in their historical social cultural linguistic context and try to understand this text through that lens rather than expecting it to be literal and expecting it to reveal exactly who God is. Um, so let's start at the start. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So let's pause right there. Um, you'll notice that what this is saying is God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless. Um, then God said, let there be light. So if we're reading this literally, then the earth exists before the sun. That obviously scientifically does not make any sense, and it's impossible, and it doesn't you know, conform to what our science uh, tells us about the formation of cosmos and earth and sun and, and the rest of the universe. Um, so, I mean, you could take it on faith that there's some kind of miraculous process going on here, or you could try to view it through ancient eyes. Um, so when they're talking about the earth, they're talking about the dirt under their feet and that they can see to their horizon. Um, and when they're talking about God saying, let there be light, they're not necessarily talking about God creating little photons of light particles, but rather that God is ordering the creation that's there, right? That he is assigning names to things and value to things. Um, we'll call this light, and that's good. We'll call this dark. Um, we'll call this night. Um, and so, you know, just at the very beginning of the Bible, we get a pretty clear indication that this isn't really meant to be a scientific uh, account of creation or a video camera recording of creation, but rather this is the ancient Israelites trying to uh, generate meaning and wisdom through their mythology, through their creation myth. And we do this too. You know, we have a creation myth for America, for the founding of America, you know, I guarantee you, 99 out of 100 Americans, if you ask them on the street, would say something along the lines of, well, yeah, in 1776, we formed the United States of America. And that's not true. <laughs> we, we declared independence, and then we had, you know, the Revolution War, then we had the Articles of Confederation for about 11, 12, 13 years. Then we had a constitutional convention, then we formed the United States of America as we know it today. Um, I guarantee if you talk to most Americans about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, they're going to have in their mind this image of the, this famous painting that's in a lot of history textbooks um, of all the 56 signers in one place at one time, Thomas Jefferson turning in the draft of the Declaration for everyone's signature. That didn't happen. The, the Declaration was signed piecemeal, a few signatures at a time, over a period of a few weeks, it wasn't fully uh, signed and ratified to like August 2nd or something, you know, and yet we have this myth in our minds that gives us a sense of meaning. You know, America is this 
we we were this unified group who um, where the founders came together and they were unified and they were um, had a single purpose and that's awesome and if we as Americans can just rally together and have a single purpose we can do anything right we have this mythology myth, myth in our minds that gives us meaning as a people and that's good that's great um, so this what we see here in Genesis even in the Bible and other places in the Bible is something similar where the authors are not concerned about getting all the factual details right or all the scientific details right they're concerned about conveying meaning and symbolism and wisdom and most importantly perhaps equipping us to figure out how to apply the scriptures and the holy spirit with wisdom so next, if you flip over to Genesis uh, 5, 6, and 7, we get the flood account and Noah and the ark. And many scholars have observed that the biblical flood story is a universal story across pretty much every culture that we know of. Um, every you know, historical culture, every modern culture, you know, we have some kind of um, story of a global flood or a uh, flood that covered everything that people knew at the time, you know, all the way to the horizon. Um, and if you compare um, this flood story in Genesis to um, the flood story and the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation myth, they are remarkably similar. Um, there are a couple other flood myths too that are also very similar, but the one in the Enuma Elish is especially striking in its parallels. Um, so what does that mean? Does that mean that the Babylonians took the Enuma Elish from the Hebrew? text and manuscripts? Does that mean vice versa happened? Or does it simply mean that these ancient Israelites were living in the same region more or less as the ancient Babylonians? They were influenced by the cultures around them just as they influenced those cultures too. Um, so, you know, again, making this analogous to our experience, our lives, I mean, we are influenced by the culture around us um, and we also influence culture. You know, we export our music and our movies and our entertainment, and um, we import a lot of entertainment and movies and TV shows, especially from England or the BBC. Um, but we also, um, you know, I mean, think about our food. You know, how much of our food started as something in another country, and we imported it, Americanized it, and now, you know, it's you know almost indistinguishable from American cuisine in a sense. Um, and so. The ancient authors of Genesis also were influenced by the culture around them as well as influencing those cultures. It makes sense that you would see parallels between the flood story in Genesis and the flood story in the New Elish. And bridging from that, so if we're getting comfortable with this idea of the ancient Israelites having an ancient worldview, ancient eyes, ancient lens, and being in, embedded within the culture and the, of the region in which they're living, if we're getting comfortable with that idea, then I think we have a much stronger footing when we get to the conquest narrative. Um, because if you're reading the conquest narrative, um, especially if you know you're fairly young in your faith, you know you've, you've never read the Bible really. You've just heard the stories at children's church and Sunday school and from the pulpit. 
and you know but your pastor and other people really emphasize that it's important to read the scriptures so so you've decided as a young 18 20 22 year old that i'm gonna finally do it i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna read my bible um and really understand god and then you get you know you get to genesis chapter 5 and you're like wow god is so mad at humanity he's just wiping them all out except noah oh gosh that's much more intense than the uh, cuddly version I learned in children's church. Um, and then you get to Joshua, and it's like, holy cow, <laughs> God is commanding genocide of the Canaanites. That does not seem like Jesus. Um, what is going on here? But again, if you look at this through ancient eyes rather than modern eyes, you don't expect it to be an accurate historical account or record. The authors of Joshua could not have cared less about <laughs> us having an accurate body count for this conquest of Canaan. They were trying to um, create a nationalist literature, uh, trying to show, you know, create a base from which they could teach their children, their grandchildren, you know, Israel's a pretty awesome country. We're a pretty awesome people group. Um, look, look at our past. Look at this great military conquest that we can point to as evidence of God's favor on us and of evidence of our greatness as a people. You know, again, the ancient Israelites were influenced by the people groups and their cultures around them. Every other culture group, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, um, the uh, Philistines, etc., they all had some kind of nationalist literature that described their founding and, the, and it was always a heroic um, military conquest or, or some other kind of uh, quest type story. Um, you know, you think about uh, Virgil's Aeneid being another great example. No, it's much later than the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, but still you have, you know, this example of a story about the founding of a great nation. Um, and so that's, I, I think it makes sense that the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews, would want to um, have their have their own kind of nationalist literature of their greatness as a people and their founding. And personally, I think it's a grave mistake to try to, quote-unquote, baptize the conquest narrative as, you know, well, God said that this is okay to slaughter all these people and take their land. Um, because that's not Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. And if Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, then we have, I think, we have to read all of the scriptures in light of Jesus. And where those scriptures... Um, conflict with Jesus, then as far as I can see, you've got a couple options. One option is to say, well, yes, but God is also just and righteous and he will punish sin. He will uh, punish evildoers. Um, but then what about all those sinners and evildoers who live healthy, wealthy, prosperous lives? And, you know, we all know those people. <laughs> we can point to plenty of examples of prominent people who fit that description. Um, so that kind of falls apart a little bit. Um, and so then you start saying, well, those people are going to get theirs in hell. Um, well, are they? I mean, maybe, probably. I would hope so, or someone might hope so. But do you know the mind of God? I mean, do you know that for sure? You know, um, that's pretty uh, bold to say. I'm pretty confident God would send those people to hell. So um, the other option is to say, well, this was an exaggerated account because these authors were writing in a context in which that's what you did. You, um, you know, killed 10% of the enemy 
and the rest of them fled and then you wrote about it that said you destroyed all of them you know that's just how you wrote this kind of literature in this kind of culture and context um and and so i think that that latter view um, is a much better way of understanding the scriptures because again we got to read i think the whole bible in light of jesus and the idea that god would command genocide does not square with Jesus at all. And the idea that, well, it was okay this one time because those Canaanites were just such awful sinners. I mean, we're all sinners. And Jesus died for us while we all remain sinners, according to the Apostle Paul. Um, so I think that we have to instead view things like the conquest narrative as nationalist literature. And here's the crazy thing. The book of Joshua itself lays out that you should read it in that latter way as an exaggerated conquest narrative grounded in this ancient impulse to create a nationalist literature and the story of a heroic military conquest and founding. You know, if you look at Joshua um, chapter 10, we get this list of these southern cities that are conquered. Um, and you are we're, we read um, in chapter 11, at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Deborah, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashad did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as God, the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. So we're told there in Joshua chapter 11 that Joshua conquered the entire land as the Lord commanded. But if we flip over to uh, 13, chapter 13, verse uh, 2 through 7, we read, this is the land that remains. <laughs> so these are the land that remains to be taken over. All the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. Um, you go to chapter 16, verse 10, uh, and we read, They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Um, and then there's another passage in twenty-three, um, chapter 23, verse 4. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. So Joshua is saying farewell, and he's saying, remember, there's this more land to conquer, and God will drive them out of your way, just like he drove these other enemies out of my way. Um, and so we get these hints in the book of Joshua itself that not everything in Joshua is necessarily historically accurate, or supposed intended to be taken as historically accurate. Um, we get, in the book itself, clues to how we should read it. This is one of the biggest things, by the way, that I think I've taken away from the Bible Project and Tim Mackey is um, he will go through scripture and he'll say, if you look, if you read scripture carefully and you look closely at certain passages, you compare certain passages, you get a sense of how the authors intended you to read that passage or to read that book. Um, and it's often not literal. It's often more metaphorical, symbolic, um, or more driving at some meaning or wisdom. So, I mean, you can see here in the book of Joshua that it, the book itself tells us, don't take this all as 
modern history. Don't take this all literally. Um, you know, in one place I say we destroyed everyone and conquered everything, but in other places I lay out the places we didn't destroy and conquer and that still remain to be conquered. So if you're deeply bothered by the account of God commanded divinely sanctioned genocide in the book of Joshua and elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, first of all, good for you. You should be bothered by that. Second of all, um, I think if we interpret it through ancient eyes, we recognize this isn't God commanding this. This isn't God telling the Israelites to commit genocide and take these people's land. Rather, this is an exaggerated nationalist literature created by the biblical authors um, to record how they founded this nation. And, and it also is a portrait of people being faithful to God and prospering as a result. Right? Throughout the book of Joshua, you see Joshua uh, trying to follow God's commands as closely as possible. They go so far, he goes so far as to circumcise the entire nation. Um, so the people who came out of Egypt, they'd all passed away and then the, the next generation had not been circumcised. And that's a command. We're going to follow that command. So we're going to pause in our uh, march into Canaan and we're all going to get circumcised right now. Um, yeah, I know you're 25. We're still going to do it. And so you, that's just one of several examples where if you're reading this closely, you see Joshua, you see the Israelites trying to be really faithful to God. And thus God delivers their enemies to them. Right. And so it's both human and divine. It's human in that it's this nationalist, exaggerated literature of a, their founding and their military conquest. It's divine in that it reveals the truth, the deeper truth of remaining faithful to God. And we may completely miss that larger, deeper, more significant meaning for people of faith. That meaning that squares with Jesus much more clearly and effectively. We may miss that completely if we're trying to read this as just literal historical accounting. Um, and you also see in the book of Joshua this interesting story in chapter 7 about Achan or Achan. And this is an example that connects to um, the, uh, David's census and the plague that followed. So, as a teacher of mythology, um, I uh, taught and learned about myths that try to explain the way things are. For example, the Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone. Uh, Demeter is the mother, and uh, she's the god of grain, of crops. Persephone is her daughter, and uh, she uh, gets abducted by Hades and forced into marriage with Hades. And uh, so she's in the underworld, and Demeter is so sad that she stops making the crops grow. Well, eventually humans are going to starve to death, and then there's going to be no one offering sacrifices to the gods and worshiping the gods. So the gods get together and they come up with a solution or a compromise where six months out of the year, Persephone can stay with her mother above ground, and six months out of the year, she'll live with her husband Hades beneath ground. Thus, half the year, crops and flowers and trees and shrubs bloom and grow. The other half of the year, they don't. So here we have an example of a myth that on one level is explaining the seasons, is explaining um, patterns in uh, plant growth. Um, 
and on other levels, it's talking about、um, the relationship between a mother and a daughter, and you know the problematic nature of marriage in this deeply patriarchal ancient Greek society.、Um, but fundamentally, on just a you know one level, it's an explanation of how things are, of the world as we observe it and find it. So I think you see examples of that in the Old Testament a lot, and often、um, if you read it that way. Those concerns, like those the commenter、um, brought up about、uh, this plague after David's census, or、um, other stories like the one we find in chapter seven of Joshua here, they make much more sense、um, and they square much more with Jesus. So in chapter seven of Joshua,、um, they have sacked Jericho, and、uh, this one Israelite, Achan or Achan. Um, keep some of the plunder for himself. So God had commanded them, don't keep any gold, any valuables. Just destroy it all, melt it all down, get rid of it.、Um, but this one guy keeps some and secretly and hides it. So then the Israelites、um, fail in their next battle. They get defeated. And、uh, Joshua, this is interesting. In chapter seven, verse six, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, "Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say now? That Israel has been routed by its enemies. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So God, you brought us over here just to, for us to be destroyed." It doesn't make any sense. What will you do about your great name? Because if we get wiped out, then all these other people—the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians—they're going to laugh at the God of the Israelites. What a weak God! He couldn't protect his people. He got them destroyed, in fact, by bringing them across the Jordan into this、uh, hostile territory. So then, in verse ten of chapter seven,、uh, the Lord said to Joshua, "Stand up. What are you doing, down on your face? Israel has sinned." They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run, because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So those、uh, valuables from the temples in Jericho, those、uh, idols and gold. Um, statues and all those other valuables. You got to find the ones that this guy kept. You got to destroy them because I'm unhappy with you. And until you make things right, I'm not going to be with you in battle.、Okay? And so, you know, I've mentioned this before, but this is common in ancient cultures.、Um, you know, you didn't lose that war because the other side had more chariots or better trained fighters or just luck. Um, you lost that war because、uh, their god was stronger with your god. Well, ooh, that's that's really、uh, uncomfortable. Instead, let's reframe that. You know, our god was angry with us, and he abandoned us, or he allowed us this to happen to us.、Um, so, I think you see here an example where、uh, the Bible, the biblical authors, are trying to explain what happened and why. And then you go further into this story.、Um, Joshua rounds up Achan and his entire family. And all the stuff that Achan had took, taken from Jericho,、um, and then in chapter 
chapter 7 still, um, verse 25 and 26. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest of Achan's family, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. And uh, Acre, according to the footnote in my study Bible, means trouble. The Valley of Trouble. So again, you know, as the story continues, we get an explanation of why they lost on the battlefield, as well as even an explanation of the name of this place. So we could view this passage as um, this one person wasn't faithful to God and his commands, so God um, withdrew from all the people, regardless of any of the others' uh, faithfulness, and he let them lose in battle, and who knows what casualties, what deaths and suffering were incurred as a result of that. But then to make it right, we just we need to stone not only this guy, but his whole family, um, and then burn their bodies rather than burying them. Um, wow, right? And, and so, you know, if you try to baptize that, so to speak, if you try to say, you know, that, that is accurately depicting God, um, that's deeply troubling and deeply problematic, you know? And the, I think the best you can do is to say, uh, like my student Bible says, that, well, you know, if you sin, that's the penalty, and God's righteous and just, and he will um, allow those things to happen to you. Those uh, He'll allow you to lose in battle. He'll allow um, the people around you to decide the best uh, recourses to stone you to death and your whole family. That's not very much like Jesus, at least not the Jesus I see and I interpret in the Gospels. Um, that's definitely not like the Apostle Paul saying we're all sinners, yet Christ died for us so that you know any who believe in him and uh, confess him as Lord may be saved. But if we instead view the Bible as both human and divine, okay, we can look at the human elements here. It's like, well, this very much fits with other ancient literature that sought to explain why an army lost in battle or to explain why the thing, things are the way they are or even just why this place is named what it's named. Um, this fits that very well. Maybe that's what the biblical authors were trying to do here. And it's divine. Through them, God spoke this message of, stay faithful to me. Don't worship the gods of Canaan. Don't worship the gods of Egypt or Babylon. Stay faithful to me. Okay, one more quick example. And this is the uh, issue or the example that my commenter brought up about David and the census and the plague. So in Chronicles um, chapter 21, we read, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. It's very weird, right? Like Satan wants David to take a census? Okay. Um, so David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My lord the king, are they not all my lord's subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? So just pause for a second, okay? This is a very normal thing, right? The king wants to take a census and wants to know how many men that he can call upon to fight if need be. Um, that seems like a very reasonable and proactive and smart way to govern a country. Um, and yet Joab, his commander, 
is very disturbed and doesn't tries to talk him out of it. We can continue on, uh, verse 4. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the numbers of the fighting men to David. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, those two tribes of Israel, because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. And interestingly, we don't really know how he punished Israel because it jumps straight to, Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies, losing in battle, um, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then decide, how should I answer the one who sent me? That is God. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So my three options are famine, or being swept away before my enemies, um, or plague. And if I'm swept away before my enemies, I might fall into the hands, I might be captured by my enemies, I don't, I don't want that. So I'll take, um, you know, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. And interestingly, it seems like that could be either famine or plague. Um, and so the Lord, perhaps in his mercy, sent a plague on Israel. Three days of plague versus three years of famine. Um, and, and the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of our night, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. Okay, so you can view that literally, and you can say, well, David messed up, and God punished him by sending a plague that killed 70,000 other people. <laughs> um or you can read that as a myth explaining what happened, right? So when I read this, I can't help but think about Homer's Iliad. Um, if you are reading the Iliad, um, you see in the very beginning that there's this plague. And they attribute this plague to the gods' displeasure. Someone has done something to make Apollo really mad. And so Apollo is down shooting men with his arrows, infecting them with plague, and they're dying. Um, so it turns out in the Iliad, well, uh, someone had taken this priestess of Apollo, and Apollo uh, sent the father to go ask for her back, and they 
basically mocked him and sent him on his way empty-handed and that made Apollo really mad so Apollo we've got to make it right with Apollo to get this plague to stop right I mean think about ancient the ancient Greeks um, or the ancient Israelites they didn't have an understanding of germs they didn't realize or understand that these microscopic organisms um, could infect people and cause disease and so if you had a calamity like a plague that killed 70,000 people so when a big event happened like a plague that killing 70,000 people um, they sought to explain that why is this happening who made God mad that this would be happening to us because only an act of God could explain this kind of level of disease and destruction. Well, what's the what's happened right before this? David took a census. It must have been that. Um, and then we have this um, altar of the Lord on this particular place. Huh, it's a weird place for an altar. You know, why is that there? Um, well, you remember when David did the census and God sent the plague and David repented and the Lord told him to build this altar and he did it out of uh, faithfulness, right? And so I think, again, this is human and divine. It's human and the, the ancient Israelites are trying to explain this awful plague um, and they're trying probably to explain why this altar is in this spot that it's in and it's divine, right? I mean, look at some of the hints we get here about God's mercy. Um, you know, God, so the Lord sent this plague on Israel Okay, that's where I read the ancient Israelites trying to explain where this came from. Um, but as you know, the angel was trying to destroy Jerusalem, God was grieved and he told the angel to stop. And if you go even you know, a little earlier in that passage, you know, like I said uh, earlier in this podcast, you know, David makes it very clear. He doesn't choose what he wants. He chooses what he doesn't want. I don't want war. I don't want to lose in war because men might capture me, and they're not merciful like God is. And so that leaves the other two options, three years of famine or three days of plague. And if God chooses three days of plague, that's, I mean, that's awful. It's better than three years of famine, right? And so it's human and divine. It's human and the ancient Israelites trying to explain why did this disease happen? Why did all these people die? Um, well, it must be because God was mad about something. What was it? must be the census that's the only thing we can point to that happened that changed that was different right before this happened um and then you know but in the divine part of that the inspiration part of that it's like well let's not make god into a monster let's like really make emphasize the grace and mercy and love that's at the core of god's character that you know god has the two choices and he chooses what's arguably the less severe but even more so than that he's grieved by the destruction and the death and he orders it to stop um and so you know whether this is a literal story or not if we read it as through ancient eyes through an ancient lens and we become comfortable with recognizing you know the ancient israelites were part of a historical time period and place part of a culture influenced by other cultures and of course they're probably going to explain plagues and things in similar ways to the cultures around them and how they explain plagues we become comfortable with that i think it helps us to get past the alarming portrait of god that he would um, kill seventy thousand or allow seventy thousand people to die 
because David took a census. Um, and it get, we get past that and we can instead look for divine being spoken to us through the story, through the scriptures, that our God is a merciful, loving God. Uh, if we're going to read the scriptures in light of Jesus, because Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, then I think we need to look for those flashes of inspiration, those flashes of divine within the human text. The Bible is human and divine. Jesus is human and divine. Um, and we, I would argue, are human and divine. You know, we are human, obviously, and we have the Holy Spirit. Um, and if the Holy Spirit is one part of the Trinity, one part of God, then this idea of human authors creating something that's both human and divine and us as humans uh, interpreting it and looking for the human and the divine you know this it's not as scary as it sounds it's not as it's not as unorthodox as it sounds and it's definitely not disrespecting scripture i would argue it's actually respecting scripture it's a high view of scripture um, because we are digging into it, trying to understand it as it was intended to be understood, and trying to figure out what is the deeper truth about God, what is the deeper wisdom to apply to our walk with God in our lives, um, rather than trying to justify the more human elements that maybe give us a very different non-Jesus picture of God. So um, hopefully my uh, commenter will you know, maybe join, start listening to the Metamorphosis podcast and maybe this will um, help him feel a little bit better. Maybe, maybe not. But if you know anyone who uh, is bothered by some of these, uh, some of the violence and some of the um, uglier portraits of God in the Bible, I hope that this message would be helpful or useful to them. Um, maybe you you know, have a different take or a different perspective, and that's fine. But if that person's bothered, maybe they would benefit from this perspective. Um, I know this has definitely made a, a good, a positive difference for me and my faith and my walk with God, and, and I hope it um, would also help you or help others. So thank you very much for listening, as always. And uh, we, I am working on lining up some interviews, so you won't always be hearing from me. But in the meantime, um, until I can get some interviews lined up and recorded and edited, um, I will try to uh, post weekly something um, in which I'm reflecting on the Bible and or reflecting on um, my walk with God. Um, or maybe you know, occasionally the news story of others and their walks with God. So thank you very much for listening, and God bless.